0: You are listening to National Security Law Today.
1: Welcome to National Security Law Today. We're your source for growth in the area of national security law during the nationwide protests, the COVID 19 pandemic quarantine, and all the time.
0: As always, the lawyers on NSLT are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or
2: company. The podcast today is about the Insurrection Act. What is it? What are its origins? And how did it evolve over time? What is meant by the phrase combinations that are too powerful to be suppressed in the ordinary course of judicial proceedings or by powers vested in the marshals by laws of the United States? So open your code books to Title 10, United States Code, Section 251 through 253.
1: Does the current law find its origins in the Civil Rights Act of 1871 and the deployment of the military to stop, wait for it, for the Ku Klux Klan? And how does the Insurrection Act allow for the deployment of the military in light of the Posse Comitatus Act?
0: Could the Insurrection Act possibly have roots in something called the Militia Act of 1792? Who can invoke it? The president? State governors?
2: Our our guests today are going to explain it all to you. We welcome back Professor Bill Banks, who teaches at Syracuse University College of Law and the Maxwell School, and was the founder of Syracuse's Institute for National Security and Counterterrorism. He has written the gold standard textbook uh, on national security and counterterrorism law, as well as legal review and mag- legal reviews rather and magazine articles on emergency powers, the military, and martial law. Some of which we will link in the show's notes and he is also Chair of the Advisory Committee on Law and National Security. We also welcome back Mr. Harvey Rishikoff, a Visiting Professor at Temple Law School, the Director of Policy and Cybersecurity Research at the University of Maryland's Applied Research Laboratory for Intelligence and Security, whose long and impressive CV includes roles at the National War College, the staff of the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, the FBI, the ODNI, and a senior counsel to the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Fellas, thanks for being here.
3: It's good to be with you.
4: Uh, It's a pleasure to to share the podium again with Professor Bill Banks, who's uh, not only one of the more extraordinary scholars in the area, but I'm proud to say a friend.
1: So for our listeners, this podcast is going to cover the history of the Insurrection Act, the exact authorities available to the president under the Insurrection Act, and how it can be invoked. And finally, what norms and values guide the use of the act in these unusual times. Uh, We're recording because the president has signaled that he may invoke this act, and we want to help give some context to um, what
3: that might mean.
2: Gentlemen, when was this act created and what motivated its passage?
3: I'll begin by providing a little bit of the historical background, uh, and, and I should say, as we begin here today that we're all uh speaking uh and recording this podcast today at a time of incredible national peril uh, and under a cloud not only where where you all sit in our nation's capital but everywhere in the united states precipitated by the confluence of the extraordinary events of the past uh, two weeks or so uh, on top of a worldwide pandemic. It's a time that none of us has uh, seen the likes of before. In our own history, even before we were the United States, we were colonies and our colonists grew sufficiently disgruntled by the increasingly martial measures that have been imposed by King George of England that the drafters of the declaration listed among its central complaints, the tendencies of the crown, quote, to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power, end quote. So the revolution that followed, of course, successfully led to uh, an early set of the United States, uh, and then eventually to a constitutional convention, which, uh, Uh, began to shape our response to problems of internal security. Over time, the presence of the military in our society inside the United States has been limited by two interrelated traditions that are embedded in policy and law. Because the military did grow out of our revolutionary and constitutional heritage, Its subordination to civilian control has been a central feature of our government from the beginning. Constitution anticipates that military force might be required for domestic missions in extraordinary circumstances, including invasion, insurrection, and other forms of domestic violence. However, the mechanisms for the support by the military in civil settings anticipated by the Constitution are for the most part, very tightly controlled and subject to civilian decision making. There's a second consideration here, which is our federal system, which was designed to ensure that in situations where a federal military force was required to respond to a domestic crisis, decisions about that and about the need for a federal force would where possible be made by state local officials who were closest to where the troops are needed. If military personnel are required, state decision makers would deploy those personnel from within their own communities ordinarily and thereby avoid the need for a federal force. Harvey, what happened after the framing?
4: (laughs) Thank you, Bill. I think you've set up sort of the history. And as you know, among the legal historians, the critical event is uh, the Whiskey Rebellion of 1794 and that was an uprising in Western Pennsylvania sparked by a a tax on liquor, still uh, sort of spirits. And the significance is that it, since the federal government didn't have a way of putting it down, uh, Washington had to bring a force to Western Pennsylvania in order to stop it. Um, And that this demonstrated, also ironically was the last time uh, General Washington ever led troops in the field. But it marked a sort of significant time and demonstration of the federal power to be able to use and mobilize force on a specific geographical area of the country in order for them to impose their will. Eventually, the, the actual uh, tax was repealed, but uh, the long-term effect was that demonstration that... Um, the federal government had the power uh, to use it with force. And that ironically, uh, the use of the force, uh, which is sort of has some interesting effects, was that the federal party lost the support. Um, uh, And it was action that was seen as the ability, as you know, to have federal power contain and control order with the actual projection of force. And since we didn't have a standing army, it was required for him to gather the militia in order to generate the appropriate uh, responsibilities of the federal government. So I would say, Bill, it's, that's why we always remember the Whiskey Rebellion as that projection of force by the federal government.
3: Actually, the, the, that's very useful history. And the, the Whiskey Rebellion was enabled not only because the Constitution contemplated these rare instances when a federal military force might be enabled, but there was an early statute called the Calling Forth Act of 1792 that allowed the president to call on the militia to, quote, suppress an insurrection in any state. There wasn't any opposition to, to that part of the clause, but the second part of the clause also allowed the, the uh, the president to call forth the militia following the enactment of the statute to execute the laws in the United States. That was a more controversial provision, but I think in the successful uh, put down, if you will, of the Whiskey Rebellion, uh, it was uh, thought to be non-controversial, at least for a time.
4: I guess so I might ask the question, which is that, um, it, the act has been invoked over the years, um, and as you know, bills can also been used against the Ku Klux Klan um, and used to quell riots. Um, what is your sense of the more modern sensibility of the use of the power?
3: Well, what happened over the over the many years, actually in the 19th century, is that the the act, when when it was uh, passed in 1792, it included some conditions before Washington could act in the Whiskey Rebellion. For example, he had to make a determination that state and local law enforcement was un- unable to quell the disturbance. He also had to actually seek the permission of a federal judge before he could act. And he also had to issue a proclamation to the uh, to the the rioters or those in rebellion uh, to cease and desist their activities. Over a period of years, those restrictions on the power of the president to act with uh, the militia uh, fell away. First in 1807, the law was amended to allow the president to call on either the militia or the regular armed forces. And so since that date, 1807, the president has had the option of federalizing the National Guard, the modern militia, or relying on regular military. Second, those uh, other limitations on authority fell away during the Civil War when President Lincoln was deemed by Congress correctly to not not have time or the flexibility in the midst of a Civil War to follow through with each of those conditions on every instance where he might need to federalize an incident. And then, as you mentioned, Harvey, after the Civil War, during Reconstruction, the recalcitrance of many Southern states to further uh, Reconstruction programs and to uh, assist newly emancipated citizens in exercising the franchise and otherwise protecting the rights, uh, led uh, to not only uh, skirmishes with the KKK, but with efforts of the national government, now under President Grant, to use the military to help combat uh, racist violence in the South. One of the byproducts of that time, of course, as you all know, was that Congress also enacted a law called the Posse Comitatus Act, which established a presumption that the Army should not, the military more broadly, should not be involved in civilian law enforcement. It was understood at the time, however, that the Insurrection Act, which of course predated posse comitatus by uh, uh, nearly a century, would constitute an exception to the presumption created in the, uh, in, in the posse comitatus act. Throughout the late 19th century and, and through most of the 20th century, the act was uh, largely unimportant. It was used, for example, in a partisan way uh, to put down the Pullman railroad strike in the late 1890s which was a quite remarkable uh, show of force uh, by the president and the military i think i believe that 12 persons were killed uh, by army live fire during the various skirmishes that uh, were undertaken to try to put down the activities of the strikers against the Pullman company and the military were viewed at that time as actually siding with management in a in a sort of partisan way, rather than simply uh, you, you know neutrally enforcing the civilian laws. <clears throat> the most uh, the most recent modern incident before uh, the 1990s was a, a more a positive and upbeat story where both President Eisenhower and President Kennedy uh, relied on the Insurrection Act to call in federal military to enforce the, the desegregation decree of Brown versus the Board of Education. So regular military uh, escorted black school children into their school buildings in the, in, the, in the segregated South after Brown in the late 1950s and early 1960s and eventually uh, helped pave the way for nationwide desegregation.
4: Right, so Bill, that was, as we know, Executive Order 10730 that was uh, used, but I I think the other aspect of this history which puts the Posse Comitatus Act in a different light was the deal that was made by the political powers of the South with the North post that election of 1898, that we could not use uh, federal and military officials or officers in order to impose uh, law and and enforce a variety of, at that time was the attempt to have full voting rights by the African-American community, the black community. And that um, though it fits the condition and the, philosophy or doctrine of not using military for civilian purposes there is a sort of um unsavory aspect that was uh that resulted in not then enforcing as we remember you're old enough to remember probably the 13th 14th and 15th amendments there uh, it was there mad. and that um and hence your original interpretation but that that lack of reinforcement of those rights, and then the growth of Jim Crow laws that then evolved helped place a modern America in the situation we are today, which was not the full incorporation of the African American community into the body politic until, as we have to rate to the Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s and the Civil Rights Voting Act of 1965. These these acts, though they seem to be not related, are actually closely related vis-a-vis the structure and political legal structure that they created vis-a-vis creating order, the incorporation of the African-American community fully into the body politic, and the restrictions on the federal government to be able to use the military power in order to enforce certain domestic policies that many of us thought were important. And as you point out, the executive orders have been used the insurrection act in a powerful way in order to have integration in the, 19, uh, in the 1960s.
0: And has the Insurrection Act or other related acts changed over the years? It has, have they been amended? And if so, how?
3: Yeah, there, there have been several uh, amendments. Some of them were the early ones I, I mentioned earlier. That is 1807, the uh, addition of the possibility that the president could rely on regular military in, in addition to the militia. The, the preconditions that used to make it more difficult for the president to act under the uh, Insurrection Act fell away. A- and except for the proclamation for cease and desist, uh, those, those limitations have also gone by the board. There are no other requirements for the president other than it, that he issue a proclamation uh, requesting that the, that the rebels or whoever is engaged in the unlawful activity uh, stop what they're doing. The other, the other amendment, uh, essentially the the predicate for the, using the Insurrection Act is the same predicate Abra, Abraham Lincoln had in the Civil War. That part is relatively unchanged. There was a temporary uh, change in modern times after Hurricane Katrina in 2006. Uh, the the poor federal response to Hurricane Katrina. Uh, led in a very roundabout way to an amendment to the Insurrection Act, which ironically would have made it easier for the president to federalize an incident after Katrina. Some believe that the poor federal response to Hurricane Katrina was a lack of clear legal authority. Uh, That's hogwash, of course. uh, The federal government just messed up, blew it in a number of inconsequential ways but they did manage to get the amendment to the Insurrection Act in 2006. Uh, thankfully, the governors of all 50 states were opposed to that amendment, as were their state adjutant generals in the National Guard. So in the new Congress in the next year in 2007, Congress promptly <laughs> repealed the uh, amendment that they had enacted less than a year earlier. So in 2020, we're living with the Insurrection Insurrection Act, essentially, as it existed during the time of the Civil War.
4: And Bill, part of that issue of your the legal term hogwash, which I, I'm glad you used the Latin phrase for the listeners, was yeah. that um, there was some confusion at that time as to whether or not, if there's a disagreement between the governor and the president, what the appropriate role is to trigger that federal power. Mm-hmm. And as we get into the Insurrection Act, per se, looking at the language, well, that is why I think you hold strongly that that confusion based on the statute should not have been there, given the residual power that the president has under the
3: act. Yeah, that's true. There's a there's a, one of the provisions clearly allows the president to go on his own say so, without a request from the governor and, and even over the objection of a governor. Uh, but it's, uh, Two of the three operational provisions do anticipate uh, cooperation: one, a request from the governor, which has happened on some occasions, or the other, for for the uh, for the president to make a determination that states have been simply unable to enforce their own laws.
2: Before we wrap up this history section, I'd like to just go back for a second to this Posse Comitatus Act. What, what exactly was the history that prompted its passage? And how did it fit in at the time with the Insurrection Act?
3: During the uh, during the reconstruction period after the Civil War, uh, the, uh, the Republican Party, the party of Lincoln, of course was dominant and it exercised its dominance by deploying uh, military to Southern states to help enforce the newly uh, ratified post-Civil War amendments, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution, including perhaps most relevant here, uh, the the right to vote in the 15th Amendment. Uh, As the Southern Democrats, uh, largely the party of of the white Democrats uh, began to strengthen again in the South after the war, by the time of the 1876 election, which was closely fought between soon to be president Rutherford Hayes and his opponent opponent Samuel Tilden. The election was so close uh, that it came down to, to one that was going to be settled like our 2016 election by votes in the electoral college. Uh, with some uncertainty looming about who would win with Hayes having a margin, but a very thin margin, the Democrats uh, promised not to oppose Hayes election to the presidency if the Republicans in Congress would agree to a law in the next term that made it difficult, if not impossible, to continue to deploy the military in the South. That's what happened. It was essentially a political deal. Uh, Hayes won the presidency and within a few months of the, uh, of the new year, and a new Congress, Congress enacted the Posse Comitatus Act. And what looks like uh, simply a, a legal presumption against using the matil- uh, military for civilian law enforcement, as Harvey said earlier, also turned out to be essentially a, a racist measure to help Southern Democrats make it more difficult for newly franchised Uh, African Americans to exercise their vote in those states.
4: And as you know, Bill, the other aspect is there are sort of major exceptions now, the posse comitatus, where you can deploy the military in the assistance of law enforcement under certain sets of conditions. Sometimes it may always the fact that the civilians will be in charge, not a military officer, that the military assets are being deployed perhaps for uh, the force protection, as opposed to being used to gather surveillance or information. So we've had a number of circumstances in the modern era in which the military has been asked to assist. Um, the, the law enforcement in a, in a variety of scenarios that we've felt comfortable with, as, but yet there has to be clear accountability of who is controlling the military assets when they're deployed that way.
2: Well, that's an interesting history. I think that would surprise people who hearing today that the Insurrection Act could be invoked uh, to respond to what has really shifted in the last 24 hours to a focus on peaceful protest. Um, And I guess part of what I'm seeing too is that these laws can also be invoked to protect constitutional rights. Um, uh, And I say that without any irony, that's in at least some of the text of, of one of these laws. Um, I'd like to move on though away from our history section and talk about the law itself. Um, so I'm sure everybody listening wonders exactly what the definition is of the term insurrection. You
3: know, it's, uh, one of the most striking parts of the insurrection act is that the term is really not defined. The language here, it talks about in section 252, uh, unlawful combinations, obstructions or assemblages or rebellion against the authority of the United States. And then it, it, if any of those circumstances, quote, make it impracticable for the for enforcing the laws of the United States in any state, in the ordinary course of judicial proceedings. In other words, are the courts open or if the co- courts are obstructed in some way? Uh, then the president has the authority to act under the Insurrection Act if if one of those conditions has been met. Uh, The language in the Insurrection Act is somewhat different than the language in the uh, Constitution, Article 4, uh, that uh, guarantees to the states a Republican form of government, which essentially says that if there's an invasion or an insurrection, the federal government should come to the aid of the states to protect them. And then in another provision, as the so-called protection clause of Article 4, it says that that in the event of domestic violence, the states may request federal military assistance. Uh, It doesn't say that the president may act on his own say-so following domestic violence. That's sort of being picky, Uh, but that's my job. I'm being picky. The Constitution says that the states should ask for it when it's a matter of domestic violence, that the president goes on his own in the event of insurrection or invasion. But the statute uh, makes it a much more open-ended possibility.
4: Uh, Yeah, and I think there's also, I think, uh, Bill, the Article 1, Section 8, right? Um, Yes. That gives power to Congress to provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the union, suppress insurrections, and repel invasions. And your interesting question at least is, is like, how do we know what an insurrection is? It's sort of like our pornography um, uh, jurisprudence. We know it when we see it. But what's interesting is uh, early in the statutes uh, in 1795, this uh, the. Issue stated that whenever the United States shall be invaded or be in imminent danger of invasion from any foreign nation or Indian tribe, it shall be lawful for the President of the United States to call forth such number of the militia of the state or states most convenient to the place of danger or scene of action he may judge necessary to repel such an invasion and to issue his orders for that purpose to such officer or officers of the militia as we shall keep proper. Uh, as the case of an insurrection in any state against the government, it shall be law for the President of the United States, on application of the legislature of such state, or of the executive, when the legislature cannot be convened, to call for such number of militia or any other states of states, as may be applied, as he may judge sufficient to suppress such insurrection. So part of the issue is the. What's interesting from a historical perspective is, one of the perceived notions of internal rebellion were the Indians. Are uh, inside our original constitution, that was one of the major fears the federal government had and until it's not quelled to later in the century. And as um, Bill is also saying, th- the language is rather loose as to what a insurrection is and gives a sort of amount of leeway to the president vis-a-vis to call forth. And I, he, Bill read uh, from uh, the section dealing with uh, 252 uh, and 253, you know, also says the president, by using the militia or the armed forces, or both, or by any other means, shall take such measures as he considers necessary to suppress in a state any insurrection, domestic violence, unlawful combination, or conspiracy. And um, Bill can't say this, but, you know, we use his book, Chapter 38 that deals specifically with this issue. And I was, I've taught it again this semester. And I think the students and I are always um, taken aback by how open-ended the language is for the power to the president, the lack of any statutory or even historic definition of the terms, which I think has helped explain some of the reasons we've gotten to the situation we are currently in. Because of the, the not the tightness of what exactly triggers that power for the executive branch of the president.
1: Yeah, so let's d- dig deeper into that point, Harvey. Um, I'd really love to know more about, you know, I'd really like to tie this historical discussion to um, what's going on at the present moment. So, have any states requested military assistance so far? Um, and to what extent can the President act to deploy the military without uh, state's
3: consent? So far, the states, no state governor has requested uh, federal military involvement. Uh, and in fact, several governors uh, actually declined President Trump's request to send their National Guard forces to the DC area. And at least one governor I read in, in the state of Illinois, Governor Pritzker, Said that the uh, that the federal military, if they were called out, would not be welcome in the state of Illinois. So it's quite the contrary that uh, uh, the possibility that you raise uh, that the 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 understanding is that states and cities can manage their own affairs, and, and they can manage their own affairs usually without any military involvement. That's why we have. Uh, state and local law enforcement officers. Indeed that constitutional heritage and history that I spoke about at the beginning is reflected in, in, in our, in our norms and values in, in the tradition of having policing done by state and local uh, officials who happen to live in our communities. They may wear blue uniforms and have on badges and sometimes may even be carrying a weapon, but they're our neighbors and we expect them to be able to enforce the laws in an even-handed way. Only when those individuals in that force has been unable to uh, maintain the the domestic uh, security in their communities is the next step taken. And then that next step is in the hands of the governor and the governor would call forth the modern militia, which is the National Guard subject to the governor's control. One of the things that I don't think we've uh, spoken of yet, and that's an important uh, piece of the puzzle here, uh, is that when the National Guard are deployed, uh, they're not instructed to make arrests or to uh, engage in direct and law enforcement they they're instructed to keep the peace that is to uh, guard uh, critical infrastructure facilities, uh, to direct traffic uh, to Uh, establish a cordon around uh, uh, a a controversial public place, for example, but not to go out among the people and uh, try to uh, stop looting or to uh, uh, make arrests on the street unless the police, who are then freed up to be able to do that task more productively, unless the police aren't able to follow through. So it's sort of a staged set of interventions and only in the worst case should force beyond the State National Guard be needed.
4: So as you point to underscore two or three points you've made, Bill, one is that the National Guard has been called out in some states, but those have been called out by the governor.
3: By the governor, yes.
4: And that they are under the governor's control, not federal control. That's right. And that, as you said, there's very limited, quote, arrest powers that the Guard would have. Unless it's particularly granted under some statutory state statutory authority, that's right. And that we see the guard much more, as you said, as a peacekeeping orderly force, as opposed to a projectional force or a uh, use of violence. But in our generation, we had Kent State, in which we had the guard shooting and killing a Kent State student, which became one of the uh, memes of why it's so complicated when we start deploying individuals who do not have law enforcement training and um, sort of a a cultural approach to how to deal with our own citizens. And what makes the Insurrection Act particularly uh, complicated is that you then can bring in military from outside the geographical area who have no per se direct contact with the people that are being asked to help create order which creates a different sort of um, social dynamic. So I, I think that there's some
1: um, there's in the uh, in the current you know uh, rapidly changing situation. It doesn't appear that it's clear what the president would like to call uh, active duty military service members into service for. Um, it it. It seems that he was um, the the president previously said that if uh, if the if he's not satisfied with how the uh, the local authorities are managing the uh, domestic situation, that he would use the military to enforce order. So it seems like uh, there's uh, you know in the rhetoric, at least, it seems like there's a disconnect between what the law authorizes and what the president is uh, is projecting.
3: I agree with that. And I think, you know, in the in the past few days, we've seen uh, the president apparently uh, step back from the brink of invoking the insurrection act, which he directly threatened to do a few days ago. Uh, and, And today or today or yesterday, I understand that the that the federal units who were uh, deployed uh, to the DC area earlier in the week uh, have been uh, returned or told they may return to their, to their bases, at least some of them have.
4: So as, you, as, I guess, um, as you're saying that one of the issues is under section 254, which is called the proclamation to disperse, whenever the president considers it necessary to use the militia or the armed forces under this chapter, he shall by proclamation immediately order the insurgents to disperse and retire peaceably to their abodes within a limited time. So one aspect of the drafting is, first of all, it's insurgents, which is kind of a way of characterizing what is going on with the individuals. And the other part of the interesting aspect of the law that Professor Banks has also raised in a number of his presentations, is that uh, it's the state? So DC falls into a odd category because it is not a state. Uh, second of all, it does DC does not have a lot of police power. I think the entire force is 4,000. Um, and then there's an extraordinary amount of federal law enforcement that around DC, which are demonstrated in the individuals who were. A mass to protect the white house which may uh part of the complexity of as you said who's in charge it's it's in charge of those troops is it's not the mayor apparently is it the attorney general is it the president is it someone in law enforcement is it someone in the chairman of the joint chiefs so and the fourth element of that is Uh, we would usually in the rule of law, you look for written orders. So the idea of uh, under what authority and what is the written order that will then uh, supervise the um, management of those military troops is something that normally we'd be looking for if this ratchets up and continues to have what would be a strong military presence. One would look for the actual, as we call the XOR, the execution order written by the president to the Secretary of Defense to be executed by the, the, either the chairman or, as Bill, as Bill knows, we also have NORTHCOM, North Command. NORTHCOM has to have, usually historically has had jurisdiction over North America. That's who usually you would see as the commander would be the NORTHCOM four star would be asserting his authority if we follow and continue to go down this level of uh, asserting authority and power for control. But oh, but right now
1: we've seen sort of unnamed uh, police forces that are not wearing badges or insignia or name tags, uh, and um, we've don't we haven't had the transparency that you're talking about. The public hasn't been able to examine those exorts.
4: Right, and I think the uh, mayor of Washington has requested through their attorney general the actual uh, written notification from the federal government as to who exactly has been on the streets of Washington, what authority are they under, and what authority uh, are they purporting to be able to use in order to create order in the streets. I think the mayor has asked all of those questions, and like most things in life, you know. Thank God for the lawyers, since the lawyers at the federal level and the city level and at the military level, uh, many of the people on this podcast who are attorneys working for the government, they will assert their role to say, we have to have written orders in order of us to make sure that the authorization is constitutional and statutorily correct.
2: All right. Well, this is interesting. And I, I, we haven't what we haven't included today, but we can include in the notes, is the projected cost of... Uh, this display of the military, which uh, some people feel was uh, theatrical and gratuitous. Um, And and those points may be well taken. Um, So it will be interesting to see how this thing is viewed in the rear view. But on that score, um, how do Insurrection Act deployments end as a matter of law?
3: That's a good question. And and there's not an answer to it. That is the the law is open-ended and it would be up to the discretion of the supervising uh, command authority to uh, decide when the mission has, has been accomplished. You would think in a practical sense, those decisions would be made in consultation with the uh, civilian officials on the ground, the governors or the mayors in the impacted places. Uh, the, the, certainly the legislation does not speak to that. And as Harvey was alluding to a moment ago, an exord or even regulations inside the State National Guard would provide more detail about at least a decision-making process that should be taken to uh, wind down an operation that is nearing its end. One of the uh, famous or infamous uh, uses of the Insurrection Act that we haven't talked about yet is uh, is at least partly responsive to Elise's question, and and I know that she has personal experience with this, and she may wish to comment from that perspective as well. But as, as uh, uh, most of us here on the podcast at least are able to remember, in 1992, following the videotape beating of a motorist, Rodney King, yeah. and the eventual acquittal of the police officers who were involved in his beating, riots erupted in Los Angeles. Uh, a decision was made to militarize the response to the incident based in part on the recommendation, ironically, of a man named Warren Christopher, who'd been a a deputy commissioner to a group that studied earlier riots in the Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles in 1965. Christopher argued on the basis of the 1965 example that the State National Guard forces were too slow, that they did not react quickly enough to curtail the Watts riots. And he also pointed out there was, at the time now, in 1992, apparently a poor relationship between the mayor and chief of police in Los Angeles. The governor then in 92, Pete Wilson, quickly requested federal troops and the federalization of the California National Guard and President George H.W. Bush complied. Within a day, there were more than 13,000 regular army joining 9,000 federalized California National Guard forces in addition to state and local police in riot control and law enforcement actions. So that's 22,000 military uniforms on the streets in L.A. There, w- there had been no showing that the state and local forces were unable or unwilling to enforce the law and the failure to train those active duty military forces at the time had nearly disastrous consequences. There've been a lot of reports about the 92 deployment, but one that I'm familiar with, Marines that were accompanying local police in response to a domestic dispute where a shot had been fired from a house, the Marines responded to an officer's request to quote, cover me, by spraying the house with 200 M16 rounds. So instead of being prepared to respond if the police officer was threatened, the Marines preemptively fired on the house. So uh, that's a pretty awful, overly militarized response to an incident that may not have even required uh, a federal authority. Elisa, do you have a personal perspective on those events?
2: um yes i mean there there were first of all let me say this to our audience um there were three events that gave rise to the la riots um one of which was the beating of rodney king uh just to take us back so that we can see the parallels uh, which was one of the first police brutality episodes to be captured by a civilian journalist uh and shared broadly and it sparked at the time the conversation about how many times it had happened previously but there was not a camera available. Uh, There was also the shooting of uh, a young black woman in the back of the head by a Korean shop owner over an orange juice. Um, The woman was convicted of a reduced charge and allowed to return to her country. Um, And then lastly, there was the acquittal uh, of the trial of these officers, um, which had been moved on a motion for a change of venue to an exurb of Los Angeles that was where a lot of police officers lived. In other words, it was a friendly venue for the trial, and there was an acquittal, and it was within hours of the acquittal that violence erupted. So um, the National Guard was not then called in right away, and um, there were abuses uh, once the military was called in, however, Um, What I think is important to remember about the LA riots is that whole neighborhoods were burned and destroyed and um, black neighborhoods in Los Angeles became food deserts uh, after that. And it was hard uh, for people to get uh, basic life necessities. One of the only positive things that I can recall is that the military stopped that in part because they didn't know what to do and they were largely just present. Um, And so, in that way, the destruction stopped, but at what cost? Um, Another positive, just for our listeners to come out of that, was the Christopher Commission, as you mentioned, uh, and widespread implementation of something known as community policing, which may have been the single greatest thing to advance our peace and stability after that riot. Um, And ironically, Bill Bratton, who was the commissioner of NYPD, as well as uh, Ed Meese, who had been um, uh, an attorney general during the Reagan administration, um, who was perceived to be very conservative um, and very extreme. Um, They published a number of papers on community policing and began to sort of help people in departments understand the value of that to national security. So That is what I do remember, but there were abuses and they weren't one or two. Um, They were multiple by the military who really did not know what to do and they did not know who to obey uh, in the time when they were occupying the streets. But it did stop the burning and I think it did allow people to save their neighborhoods at the time. Um, But I would also emphasize that was a very different situation. Um, The peaceful protests were uh, drowned out by some of these activities. But I think what we all remember is none of that violence but the important message about racial justice uh, that came from that. Um,
4: So I think one of the couple of takeaways, one is we might want to link the actual Warren Commission report to our site uh, for people to look at because at the time it was quite a monumental piece of uh, public reporting that uh, Warren had done, Christopher Warren had done. And then, as you know,
3: Secretary, became
4: Secretary of State.
3: Yes, not, not the Warren Commission, that's JFK. Uh, yes,
4: the, uh, the uh, Secretary. <laughs> Another fascinating moment of uh, the possibility of us looking at a crisis, uh, but uh, that Warren report. And then um, the other aspect is, you remember, in the mid-90s, when we were using the military to help police the border in Mexico, and we had a shooting of an, a young boy on the border who was sitting in mexico across the um across the divide and i remember when i was the department of justice a decision had to be made as to whether or not we would prosecute the delta team that was involved for having committed murder for shooting the the uh, young man who did not pose a threat and what we saw was a classic cultural problem which is when bill said when the marine said cover me this then resulted in a fuselage of, of, of fire. In this case, there was a sense that unclear on the facts of whether or not there had been a shot by the young boy at the location of where the, the Delta team was. And the Delta team's training was to engage, immediately engage the shooter. Whereas when I was sitting with my FBI agents, their reaction was run away, get out of there. You don't have enough firepower. this is not what your responsibility is. Go back to to the headquarters and figure out what to do as opposed to engage. Because they knew they didn't have jurisdiction to arrest the young man because he was outside of their jurisdiction. So that cultural problem is why people get nervous when you start deploying the military in domestic law enforcement contexts. And as you're pointing out, I think in the current situation, we have a belief that people have a right to protest It's a fundamental First Amendment right and that if they are doing it peaceably, one should not use force in order to uh, take apart or control that demonstration. I I
1: think that you bring up a really important point, Harvey, with that, because, you know, there are some concerns a that police officers are um, using excessive um, force against peaceful protesters. Uh, At the moment, and if you add on top of that, the element of military members being inserted into unfamiliar territory, doing an unfamiliar mission, that we might escalate these situations that um, when it would be probably more beneficial to everyone if everyone were uh, trying to de-escalate those situations.
4: Right. And I think if there is violence or, or burning, one should use proportional types of force to reestablish order that is much more in the um, culture and tradition of a traditional law enforcement trained group of individuals. So I think that's why we're, I think people are quite tense. And I think the hope is is that the demonstrations will continue to be peaceful and every right to petition the local government to gather in order to enforce rights in order to have reform inside the system that's a very sort of is guaranteed by by the amendments but i'd love to just kind of press on
1: this point like there even former military leaders uh and um and members have expressed concern about the abuse of power uh uh, of the military especially with um different uh equipment uh, oftentimes that local police don't have and different tactics that are not typically seen uh, in the U.S. domestically. What are the core laws, norms, and values that um, we expect to restrain the military? And do we think that they're going to be effective?
3: One, of course, is is perhaps one of the core values in our society, which is the subordination of the military to civilian authority. Uh, And as, as you know, that every member of the military takes an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. That's true from, the, from enlisted at the lowest ranks through the, uh, through the uh, flag officers. And I think we're seeing uh, in, in just the last few days uh, signs that that uh, oath and that fealty to law and to the Constitution is, uh, is overcoming any tendency to simply uh, fall in line behind egregious uh, uh, orders or instructions to disrupt peaceful uh, protests—not only the the comments in the last few days from the uh, former officers like General Mattis, but uh, comments from current officials like the Secretary of Defense—that it's not appropriate uh, to to send in armed military to uh, peaceful protests on our nation's cities and streets. So the the dominant value here, I think, is subordination of the military to civilian authority and their respect for law. Military members from the lowest to the highest rank have a duty not to follow unlawful orders. You raise a very... Because they they ask the military to do something that the constitution does not sanction. So
4: I used to teach civ mill relations at the national war college and this has raised the classic civilian military relations there's a the old book and classic is by um samuel p huntington called soldier and state if anyone who's listening would like to pull that out and um then the subsequent commentary on soldier state but i think when you've seen a lot of comments by the generals who've come forward in the last couple of days this week is a deep commitment to the depoliticization of the military. I would say one of the concerns that has happened in the last 10 years has been the concept of senior military officials coming out in support of different political candidates. That prior to the last 10 or 15 years, we never saw that. And I used to teach the military, I used to say, it's almost, if you are a professional It'd be like seeing a federal judge come out for a political candidate. Judges and the federal judiciary are just, are not supposed to do that. It's not part of your profession. You're supposed to be apolitical and only follow the, whoever is in is authority to give you, as Bill is saying, lawful orders. But you have every right to request that order to be in writing and to have a JAG officer give you an opinion as to whether or not that order is lawful. And then if you have a conscience issue, you should then say as a matter of conscience, I cannot carry out the order, but you have to be prepared in order to be prosecuted if there's a consensus by the Jags that that order is lawful. That that is one of the core tensions. And I think the generals in particular have said, we historically should not be used as political props for political opportunities or photo ops in any political sense. And that has been one of the core issues that the last couple of days have raised.
2: Harvey, thanks for that. I mean, I would point out, uh, as of this recording, it's been far more than uh, one or two former generals who have uh, expressed dismay, um, and in some instances, disgust Um, at some of the things that the military has been used for. But in particular, the the focus has been on the clearing of Lafayette Park. Uh, That is the park that honors the Marquis de Lafayette, who was a human rights champion from France, who came to fight next to George Washington during the revolution, uh, um, because he so believed in human rights. So it it was tremendously ironic anyway. But beyond that, one person it was every single president prior to this one and it was as of right now six generals Uh, general mullen has joined the group as of the last couple of hours Uh, so we're really talking about a critical mass of people um, who have been uh, outraged and upset i don't know if you have any further comment on that harvey
4: Uh, i would say that there's a a clear sense among the traditional understanding of civilian military relations, that A, military troops should not be deployed to take actions against uh, citizens who are performing their constitutionally protected rights. I think there's the other element that is in the comments, which is that the military should not be used uh, and politicized in any way in order to attain their independent sense of their profession and that is why as we were talking with uh, professor banks and Bill, is that that's why you use the national guard it has to reach a tipping point of such level of i would say a disorder on the streets that overwhelms traditional civilian capacity either police and or guard that you then would want to federalize or invoke the insurrection act and deploy troops. And as the examples we've used historically, that tipping point I think most people thought had transpired. And, and they were being used either to integrate the South or to create um, a certain level of stability and order in Atlanta in LA. And as and there were problems with it. And we also had similar senses of Katrina, in which there seemed to be chaos on the streets. But it has to be, it has to be an overwhelming of the traditional modes before a president or a governor says we're going to nationalize or federalize these troops and bring in even more. And um, I think the, as you've been pointing out, as we sit here at on uh, May fifth at uh, three oh eight.
2: It's June it, June fifth.
4: Yeah, <laughs> I guess I'm such an academic, I was still hoping it was May. Um, On on June 5th at, you know, 308, uh, there is no sense that we have this level of disorder currently in the United States.
1: And indeed, uh, Secretary of Defense um, Mark Esper has indicated such.
4: Right. He has said publicly he's opposed to the invocation of the Insurrection Act, that it's not, it should not be triggered. But as Bill pointed out, what's odd about this is that we do not really have a clear constitutional or statutory definition that actually allows for the triggering of the insurrection act the, the all the language levels the level of violence that one would think is going to be as we say in the law a reps ipso facto The thing speaks for itself you should know that that level of disorder is taking place
2: All right. Well, I think we'll have to, we're going to have to wrap it up there for this time. Um, I, you know, I sincerely hope that uh, our listeners take something from this. Um, I'm sure some people greet this uh, with crushing sadness to understand the more than 150 year racial history of some of these laws. Uh, and sort of where we are today, Um, but uh, I hope that something positive will come out of this. Bill and Harvey, I wanna thank you so much for joining us in these terribly uncertain times, and we hope that you'll join us again in the future because these events are gonna unfold and change in the coming days and weeks.
3: My pleasure, thank you.
4: I wanna thank you guys because I think you guys are doing a great public service for the committee in putting this on so quickly, and I know what your days are like, and it's not that you've been floating around having nothing to do. So uh, you know, I wanna particularly say, since I know what your work like is, um, with Nicole and Yvette, and as I say, Elisa, that it's quite wonderful you guys to do this effort and continue to do it and keep up the good work. And other than me, bring back the brainiacs like banks, because I think they give a very good perspective on what's going on and it's a calming voice and a rational voice that I think we need in these times, given what's happening.
0: Thank you, and thank you to our listeners. If you are new to this area of law, we're going to hyperlink the statutes and executive orders that we mentioned today, and also some of the links to articles that Professor Banks has authored on the subject, including a recent Atlantic article.
1: We we're gonna to continue to deliver content to you during these difficult times so that you'll grow your knowledge of the law especially the law that's applicable to these times. And we're gonna let you know about legal opportunities and all events that affect national security law.
4: And I would just say finally, though Bill can't say it, if you really wanna have a tune that will help you guide you through this legal ticket, this national security law textbook is uh, a Bible for many of us.
1: That is true, and we will uh, put a link in uh, for the uh, um, Amazon uh, link for you to purchase it if you are so, so moved. Remember to hit that subscribe button on your app, app of choice so you can know when we are pushing content. Uh, this was an emergency cast. We were not scheduled to be uh, doing this this week, but the news, the news called for it, and we're glad to be here. Be sure to send us comments or feedback because we want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter at ABA NATSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org.
2: And the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will do whatever it can to keep you informed and aware. Make sure that you have contacts, too, on all these fast-moving legal developments. That way you don't have to search for it beyond your smartphone or laptop screen. Take a break from uh, staring at the -the round-the-clock coverage. Fill your mind with a little law. It can be very comforting, and it can also give you ideas. If you want to be a catalyst for change, perhaps you'll begin to understand where change may need to occur as a legal matter.
0: And again, don't forget that the lawyers hosting this podcast and appearing on it are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm.
2: We'll be back next week with more content. Thank you for joining us today on this emergency cast. Be well, everyone. COVID is still out there. We hope you're safe. We're all in this together, even though we're apart, even though we may have different views. We're one country. Let's come together through education, knowledge, and growth. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the black letter laws and articles mentioned on our show today
0: in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Matt Sack.